Runners Radio is brought to you by runners.com and the Runners Red Zone. It's the only running coaching platform you will ever need. There's no thinking, no planning. We do all of that. Just put us in your ears and away you go. 45-minute quality running sessions, strength and conditioning for anyone, yoga, and much, much more. If you're wanting to take minutes off your PB, run a marathon, or just beginning your running journey, then head on over to runners.com. That's R-U-N-N-E-Z.com, and get started. Rightio, let's get on to the show. G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. Well, today um, I've looked up to this fella for a long, long time. He's a very accomplished coach, one of the world's leading media journalists in endurance sport and beyond, a great podcaster with his morning shakeout, and a quite an accomplished athlete and runner to boot. I welcome to the Runners Radio, Mario Frioli. Welcome, mate. Rick, that is probably the best intro that I've ever gotten. So thank you so much and thank you for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, you're so kind with your time, mate. And I reached out only a few weeks ago and you were so quick to reply. So thank you. Um, we're recording this um, AM morning in Melbourne time, but thanks for jumping on the Arvo in San Fran. Now, Mario, you might have already heard of him if you're a listener of this show, but he has done it all, especially in journalism, but in coaching as well. So I won't go too much longer. I'll, I'll let you talk, buddy. But just real quickly, We'll get into your chronological life in the coaching and, and athlete as, as a start, but tell us about the beginning, uh, early days, Massachusetts, where it all began for a young Mario Frioli running, I think a bit of basketball as well, and where it all started and how you became the uh, human being and the, I guess, the motivator you are today. So I love talking about this. I don't get a chance to do it all that often, but I was born and raised in central Massachusetts, a little town called Auburn. The next closest city is, is Worcester. It's about 40, 40, 45 minute drive west of, of Boston. And I spent most of my life there. I'm 38 years old now. I moved to California 10 years ago, day after my 28th birthday. But central Massachusetts is a very, it's very blue collar place. Um, the weather is pretty miserable most of the year, hot, humid summers, cold, brutal winters. Uh, and for me, that was just what I grew up with. It was, it was normal, but I think that upbringing really, really shaped me. I mean, came from a working class family. My dad was a master plumber for 45 years, retired a couple years ago from that. My mom worked just as a, a bank teller and then eventually in, um, admissions office at a, at a local university. But I mean, I grew up normal, what I consider just a, a normal, you know, as, as a normal kid. I mean, I played all the sports. I played baseball. I played soccer. I played basketball. Uh, basketball ended up being my favorite. I had a dream as a young kid that I wanted to play Division One college basketball and then play for the Celtics in the NBA. And I was just really proud of my Massachusetts and New England heritage. I actually wanted to play hoop at Holy Cross College, which is a small Division One school. It was right around the corner from my house where I grew up. And then I wanted to play for the Boston Celtics and spend my entire entire life in Massachusetts. And fast forward uh, many, many years, none of that panned out. Uh, I'm not playing basketball anymore. Uh, I no longer live in, in Massachusetts. But as a, as a kid, I just, I loved all sports, but basketball was the one that, that really pulled at me. And when I was in... I mean, junior high, I basically brought a basketball with me everywhere. I carried it to school. I was dribbling at any opportunity that I had. I was watching all these Pistol Pete Maravich ball handling videos, um, teaching myself all, all kinds of skills. Unfortunately, I never really grew. Uh, I'm five feet, eight inches tall, and I think I was five feet, eight inches tall in eighth grade, so I've kind of been stuck there. Um, but I stuck with the sport through high school eventually found running, which initially was a means to keep in shape for basketball, but quickly found out that I was a, a much, I wouldn't say a much better runner than I was a basketball player, but I had much more potential and room for opportunity in running than I, than I ever could have imagined as a, as a basketball player. I mean, that's a, it's a very truncated version of, of my story, but I'm happy to go as deep as you want into any specific part of it. No, I, I've known about this for a bit, and I do, I do love it. A point guard or your shooting guard, man? 
No, I was point guard. Yeah, I didn't quite have the height to be be a shooting guard, but I handled the ball, um, ran the offense. I was the guy who distributed the ball to to others more so than putting the ball in the hoop, which I did from time to time. But I mean, I was I was more of like a John Stockton type. I mean, he was my hero growing up. Played for the Utah Jazz, Carl Malone. We had a kid on our team named Kevin Reed who was a phenomenal basketball player. Ended up playing Division One at the University of of Maine, and he was uh, I, I I was. I wouldn't even call myself his right hand man, but he was like my Carl. He was like my Carl Malone, right? I could feed him the ball, and he he would put it in, he would put it in the hoop. But yeah, I uh, I loved playing point. I loved dribbling the ball. Um, I loved getting the ball to others so that they could score. I love running the offense. I love playing defense. I like to think of myself as a, a pretty scrappy person. And my dad was my first coach, and I remember as a real young kid playing basketball, he always emphasize the importance of playing good defense and how it was much more important than what you could do on offense. And that just always, you know, that always stuck with me. And I always looked at myself when I was playing basketball as much more of a defensive player than, than I was, you know, an, an offensive player, but, but I was a point guard and, and on the offensive side of things, I did, you know, did, did all those things. I like can't handle the ball, ran the offense, uh, got other, people opportunities to to score and i've yeah i miss it to some degree but yeah, yeah i can tell in your voice and i love that and i think what you've just mentioned then like stockton's one of the all-time greats um on the point but what you've just mentioned then is the ability to make others better work ethic defensive end one percenters all those things and isn't that what we love about endurance sport as well and coaching so it was the seeds were laid pretty early like you can tell that there you certainly the point guard and that obsession with becoming better even at junior junior high or even junior college i can't remember if if it's junior 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 high yeah i I never played basketball in college but you're right i mean and for me it wasn't until i got older that i was able to look back and better appreciate my general upbringing but also those seeds that got planted in my early days in sport and just, you know, lessons that I learned from my parents, from my grandparents, from the area that I grew up in at, at, when you're, when you're that old, I mean, I don't think I certainly didn't, but I don't think most kids have a lot of self-awareness at that age to, to really understand those pieces and how they're coming together to form you into the person that you will become. But I can look in the rearview mirror and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of this makes sense now um, in retrospect. Exactly. And it's what, it's what makes us. And, and yeah, I think that's massive on you. And the passion when you talk about your basketball days is so evident now. And, mate, you could, you could pick it up again, couldn't you? Just a, a little domestic top I do from time to time. Not in any competitive capacity, but I still love to dribble the ball. I mean, I've got a cheap ball that I picked up at Target and I'll play around with it from time to time. I did play a little pig and some horse with a buddy of mine (laughs) just a few months ago and it comes back pretty quick. I mean, I spent, I'm not exaggerating, I spent a lot of time playing basketball and it's a lot of, you know, motor memory type stuff. And I don't think I'm as quick as I was when I was in my teens but a lot of it came back a lot quicker at least the ball handling stuff than i would have thought i mean my body is not conditioned to handle the rigors of a basketball game it's very different from the demands of of long distance running but when i go out to the playground and i'm just messing around it takes me back uh you know 20 plus years to when I was a kid and that's what I did all the time. I mean, my dad used to drop me off on his way to work. He would have to be at work at 6.30. He'd drop me off at the high school gym, 6 a.m., 6.15, and I would play for an hour before school. I got in good with the gym teacher, Mrs. C, and I would just I would just dribble around the gym. The, the deal was I had to help her. We had these like bleachers that came out. like They came, came out of the wall. I had to help her push those back uh, for the gym classes that day. But as long as I helped her out, I was able to use the gym before school. I had a ball in my locker. I mean, I carried it with me everywhere. So now, I mean, I got I got no desire, at least at this point, to join like an old man basketball league, maybe someday. Uh, but I love just playing around at the elementary school around the corner from my house. And it just it's just pure joy for me. It's like, a, you know, it's a real at this point in my life, like it's, it's a real hobby and it really is just pure enjoyment. And there isn't the pressure of making a team or going to play in college or getting in the starting five or any of that sort of, any of that sort of stuff. I love all that. And I really wanted to cover that in depth a bit more because I knew that 
I knew that background for a little bit of what I, what I heard and read and, and listened from you, but um, that's really important. I think for your future, you, you go on now, we, we end up at Stonehaven. Now tell, tell me about your college, your colleges and you end up an all American. So take us through this little period. Cause this is when you would have thought, Oh, I've got a fanning from crack here. Like running, running could be my future. <laughs> yeah. So I ran at Stonehill college, which Stonehill. is a small liberal arts school in Northeastern Massachusetts, which is about, uh, probably about 30, 35 K South of Boston. And I went there because I knew number one, that I could run there. I didn't have a scholarship offer or anything like that coming out of school to run collegially. And it was only an hour from my house. So it was enough separation that I could be independent for the first time in my life, but it was also an hour's drive away from home. So I could get back and see my family. I'm really close to my at the time, my 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 parents, my mom since passed away, um, but my grandparents, and it was important to me to be able to get home relatively quickly so that I could I could see them and and spend time with them. But I went to Stonehill's Division NCA Division two school. Uh, they really weren't that good at all. They never had been on the men's side, and I knew that I could run there. That was a big appeal for me. I could have tried to walk on at a smaller Division one school or at a better Division two school. But there was no guarantee that I would have been able to make the team or make an impact. And I knew I could run at Stonehill. And I had a feeling that if I improved, I could make an impact on the team. And I went in there as freshman, 18 years old. And right away, I was the number one guy on the cross-country team, which I was fine with on some level. I mean, who doesn't want to be the best guy on the team? On another hand... I didn't really have anyone who could push me. I was I was sort of out there on on my own. So that was a little bit disappointing, but I took it as an opportunity to take a leadership role on the team even as a as a freshman and to try and help improve the program. I mean, we were a bit of a laughing stock when I got there as a freshman. They have this meet uh, toward the end of cross country season. It's called the All New England Championships. So all the colleges in the New England region would race in one big race, the so Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three schools. So we were up against like Providence College, which was a perennial top five NCAA Division One school every year, uh, Boston College, Brown University. I mean, top Division Two schools like UMass Lowell and Bentley College, and Division Three schools as well. New England has a rich history of Division, great Division Three schools, Keene State. Williams College, Tufts, et cetera. And we finished next to last in that race as a team. I think there were 45 or 46 teams and we were next to last. The only team we beat was this small state commuter school that was division three. And we were just in front of them. It was bad. I think I was a top finisher for us in the race. I ran, I want to say 26 First time I broke 27 for 8K, I ran like 26.40 maybe, 26.30, and I was 107th place in that race. And I was embarrassed, quite honestly. I was really embarrassed. I was like, who is proud of finishing next to last as, as a team? Uh, who individually, speaking for myself, is proud that they ran a great race and they were like 107th? I mean, and I was... Uh, and I still am a very driven person, but I was like, very driven at the time. And I use that as fuel. And I remember telling the team on the van ride back to our school, I said, that's never going to happen again. Like, we're not going to settle for being the next to last team. We're not going to be here and just be happy to participate. By the time we graduate, speaking to the other freshmen at the time, I said, I want us to be competitive in this in this race. We might not win it. I'm not delusional. I know we can't beat Providence College's top seven. Like we're we're just not gonna compete with that caliber of school. But we can do better than this. And you know, we can have people in the mix at the front of the race. So fast forward four years and we finished fourth as a team. We lost to Providence Brown, Boston College. We were the first non-division one school to to finish. I was the top individual in seventh place. So I improved about a hundred places from my, my freshman year. We qualified as a team for the NCAA division two championships for the first time ever, uh, in school history for the men's team and finished 12th at the national meet that year. And it's still like one of the, you know, fondest periods of, of my life, the four years that I, I spent at, at Stonehill college. And I improved a lot individually but 
why I'm really fond of that time is certainly the progress we made as a team, but I'm still in touch with all of those guys. They're still my best friends and we live all over the country at this point, but we have a, a running text chain. We've had stuff like that going ever since we, we graduated. First it was email. Now it's text. Like we're in touch all the time. We still tell the same stupid stories that we told, you know, 20 years ago at, at this point. Um, and it was just really, uh, it fills me with a lot of pride to have been a part of that because since I graduated, the men's cross country team has been to the NCAA championships every year since. So we started a tradition and we built a culture that didn't exist at this school in this program previously. And it's still going strong today. It's stronger than ever today. And, and Stonehill is one of the, you know, one of the premier schools in division two, um, for, for men's and women's cross country. And a lot of that credit, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, goes to the coach, Karen Bowen, who's my coach back then. She didn't coach me my freshman and sophomore year. Um, she didn't take over the cross country program till I was a, till I was a junior. Um, but she was my track coach for my freshman year on. So I had her four years for track. I had her two years for cross country. And I mean, that woman got me to believe in things that I didn't think I was capable of. And she got our group to believe in things that we couldn't have envisioned was possible when, when we arrived at, you know, at that school. And I mean, it's, again, we talk about like seeds that have been planted and kind of has, have contributed to how I do things now or how I think about things or any success that I've had. And a lot of seeds were planted in those four years at, at Stonehill college for me. Yeah. That's good. I just had goosebumps for 90 seconds. That The Stonehill days were so pivotal. I had no idea about all that, though. I knew you had a good senior year. <laughs> That's about it. So the culture that you guys built and the legacy you've left and what you what you've created as a, as a human being, the text groups, that's what makes that's what makes life, like those experiences and, right. and the story. But more importantly, um, I guess Stonehill as a, as a college now, so such a success and such a running, I guess, a, a running school known as a running school. Yeah, it is. I mean, they've, the men have been to the NCAA championships now. I mean, every year since 2003, the women's program is just as strong. The track programs on both sides are perennially competitive at the national level. There have been national champions who've come out of Stonehill. I mean, a few years after I graduated, we actually had a kid come through there who shattered all my records. His name's Keith Gill. He was the NCAA division two athlete of the year. One year, I think he ran four Oh four for the mile, like three forty six for 1500 meters. I mean, you know, just a phenomenal athlete and not long before we got there. I mean, the, again, the program was kind of a joke. I mean, that's no disrespect to the guys who were a part of it, but it was really just a participatory club for them. They didn't treat it as a collegiate sport. They didn't take it super duper seriously. They were okay with being also rans and being mediocre. And I'm not taking full credit for it, but I definitely take some of the credit for setting the tone when I got there and getting the rest of the guys who were part of my class and in subsequent classes to buy into that and want to be a part of something special and knowing that it would take a lot of work and they put in that work with me we put it in together and when i left there we had some things that we could be proud of but the fact that it's sustained now for you know the past i mean what are we talking 17 years or so is is pretty cool and pretty well, remarkable well i genuinely want to go back in time and run with you and for you because that's the kind of stuff and the basketball would have taught you that as well that that guts and determination that that intangibles like we, we're going to talk about the science and the weeds and all that later but the stuff that it doesn't you can't put anything on it it just let's just in freshman year we you gathered them on the bus and we said this is what we're going to do and in yeah. four years later it comes to fruition and it's lasted two decades and counting um just quickly on on the that your first coach i oh, sorry i missed her name that was your first genuine um distance coach yeah, for all intents and purposes, she was. When I was in high school, the coach of the cross-country team was the janitor at the school. Real nice guy. His name is Jim Ganya. Still in touch with him oh, today. He loved running. He was not a racer. He didn't know much 
or anything really about training gear. We never did workouts. Uh, all we did was race twice a week. We would take days off in between all the other runs were, you know, two miles, three miles, maybe four miles. I never ran all that long when I was in high school. I did meet a guy through the local running club going into my senior year named uh, Bill Gadare, And he was the coach of the Central Mass Striders at the time. And they would do a weekly club workout. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday nights. And he had seen me run in one of our dual meets. I was actually running against his alma mater high school. He would just go back and watch the meets to see what the kids were doing. And he approached me afterward and said, hey, Auburn, which is a school I ran for, they've never been good. They've never, I mean, we barely had a team. We had like four guys, I think in some meets we couldn't even score. Like we literally did not have enough people score, but I was, I was competitive individually. And I can't remember where I finished, uh, in the race against his alma mater, but I was, I was in the top three for sure. And I, I, if I didn't win the race, I definitely broke up their, their top few runners, which hadn't happened in years. And he's like, Hey, he's like, I, I know you guys don't have much of a program here at Auburn. I coach Central Mass Striders. We have workouts on Wednesday night at Worcester State College. It's adults, but if you want to come and train with us, you're you're more than welcome to. And I took him up on it. And going into my senior year of high school, I would go in the summertime to these track workouts at, at Worcester State College, and I would run intervals. I'd never run intervals before. And I was doing doing workouts on the track and then he would invite me along to go on some trail runs with him and you know i would do some long runs or like local 5ks and he wasn't coaching me per se he was just inviting me along to these things that i had never been exposed to before and it really helped me improve as a runner i had a great senior year because of that work that i had put in but it also lit a spark in me as far as curiosity goes and again talking about seeds being planted that really got me interested in training theory and how people train for these longer races and because i didn't have a a coach of my own that i could learn from i ended up teaching myself i ended up going to the library and pulling out whatever books i could find on running and track and field and this is late 1990s so early days of the internet i'm looking at you know how I can, you know, I'm looking up like training programs and, and how I can improve as a runner, like what workouts that I can do to get faster. And Bill was my, I, I, again, I wouldn't call him my coach. He was my first kind of real mentor. Uh, and he really opened up my eyes to what it meant to be a, a competitive runner and how they trained and what could be possible for me if I put my head down and worked at it a bit. I love that. And this is where I wanted to delve and, and I guess move into your coaching, but you, you were clearly pretty inquisitive about physiology mm -hmm. and just how to improve. And, and I love that as well, because a lot of it was self-driven. Before we move into you searching for performance and, and high performance, I guess, gains and adaptations, take us through a couple of your, I guess, finest ever racing performances now i know i know a couple of them might have been even in your mid 30s or early 30s but <laughs> yeah um off the, i know you i've put you on the spot but give us a couple give us one, one or two of your finest ever races that you felt it all just clicked on the day so I'll, I'll give you i'll give you a few um in high school there was an invitational called the wachusett invitational and it was in central massachusetts it was an odd distance. It was 2.4 miles. And again, like back to, you only know what you know, we didn't have, this is going to sound crazy to a lot of people listening to this. Like for me, cross country in high school was road racing. Most of our courses that we raced for quote unquote cross country were on the roads. And that's, that's what we did. That's what I, I thought of as cross country, uh, until we got to the state championship, which was always on, on grass or in a park somewhere, and oftentimes that was the first time I'd run on grass or in a park the entire year. Most of our races were on the road. So there was this invite called the Wachusett Invitational and it was on the roads. It was 2.4 miles. Uh, they had a large school division and a small school division. What I remember about that race is I was the only entrant from our school, from Auburn high school. We didn't feel the team because no one else wanted to go. It was on a Saturday. It was, you know, outside of the, the the normal weekly schedule so if people couldn't do it after school like they didn't want to give up their weekend to go to a cross-country race but this was my senior year i'd put in a good summer of work i had a good season and i went there by myself and 
I was in the small schools race and I took it out hard from the gun and led wire to wire. And I won that race. And I remember toward the end of the race, you come up the driveway of the school and it's, it's an uphill finish. It was a brutal finish, but you come up the hill and it was just lined with people, participants from the large school race, parents, teams. And I won by a good, I don't know, 50 seconds or something like that. So I was totally by myself and people were just going absolutely crazy. And I remember crossing the finish line, being thrilled that I won the race. It was the first big invitational that I had ever won. And my dad was there and he went to all of my races, but most of my races were just dual meets against other schools. So there would be like a couple parents around and kids and it was really quiet and you finish and they give you a popsicle stick and, you know, they record your name on a piece of paper afterward. And here it was like pretty big atmosphere, ton of kids around, you know, I crossed the finish line, people are snapping photos of me and, and interviewing me. My dad's like, holy shit. Like he, he's got some skill. Like I knew he was pretty good because he was winning some of these small races but he this is a big deal and people want to talk to him and there was an article about me in the newspaper the next day and that really motivated me and it just showed me that i could be successful outside of my my small bubble my small team my small league uh, and then I went on a few weeks later to qualify for the state championship for the first time I finished, I believe I was seventh my senior year in the state of Massachusetts, uh, after not having qualified there before. And that really got the ball rolling for me, um, on a competitive, on a competitive level and filled me with the confidence and the belief that if I stuck at this, that I could be successful. And it really reinforce that lesson we all know as runners you're going to get out of it what you put into it and i'd put a lot into it and that was the first time i'd ever really gotten a lot out of it at least externally and that was a that was a big moment for me um in high school and then probably the most memorable race i've ever run in my entire life and i've told this story on one other podcast before but my senior year at stonehill college it was the NCAA Division II regional cross-country meet at the end of our cross-country season. This is the race where you qualify for nationals. And I'd qualified as an individual the two years prior. Uh, I was one of the top two or three individuals, not on the top two or three teams because we hadn't made it. And going into my, my senior year, it was the first time we had a legit shot of making it as a team. And I knew that as our top runner, I was going to play a major role in that. The higher that I placed, especially if I beat runners from UMass Lowell and Bentley, the more likely it would be that we'd score low enough points to go on to the, the national meet. And I knew that there was a chance I could, I could win the race. There was no one in our region who was head and shoulders above anyone else. There was a lot of back and forth throughout the season between myself and a couple of runners from UMass Lowell, namely Nate Jenkins and Pat Morass. And there was a kid from Bentley College named Ryan Agnew who could be in the mix as well. So we go into this race. It's a cold day. Uh, temperature's right at freezing, but it's clear. It's not windy. The course is... I mean, it's clear, but it's it's hard. It's frozen. Like the ground is really, even though it's grass, it's just like really, really hard because it was so cold. And the race didn't go out all that fast. We had a pretty big pack at about two miles. And Nate Jenkins and Pat Morass from UMass Lowell, two of the guys I was keeping an eye on, they took off two miles into the race and threw down a real hard mile. And it was such a, I mean, they probably ran that third mile 30 seconds faster than they were in the, the mile previous to it. And it was too much of a surge for me to go with. So I, I hung back and I was kind of running in no man's land in third place. And all of these scenarios are going through my head. I'm like, all right, well, these two guys are teammates. They run for the favorite team in the region, UMass Lowell. If two of those guys finish ahead of me, that's not great for our score, but I can't finish, you know, if, if they do beat me, like I can't finish any worse than third because then that really hurts our, our team score. And I can only hope the guys behind me are doing well. So I'm like running through all these scenarios in my head and I'm totally in no man's land. There's no one else around me at this point. I'm just trying to maintain third place. I know I've got a decent one going cause I can see my splits at, at some of the clocks. And I remember right around eight K you go in, you cross the, you actually go past the finish line at eight K and then you've got to go do this two K loop. And then you come back, you come back around. And I remember passing the clock at 8K. I remember it 
to this day, it's as vivid as, as all hell in my mind, 2456 on the clock at 8K, which is the second fastest 8K that I've ever, I've ever run. I've got 2K to go. And I can see just ahead of me, Pat Morass struggling, like really struggling and coming back to me pretty quick. I'm like, I'm going to get him. Like, I know I'm going to get him. Um, and I do, I catch him with a little less than 2k to go and he tries like hell to stay with me pat's a real tough runner but he had totally gassed himself he couldn't stay with me and i was charging and now i'm in second place and i can't see nate jenkins anywhere in front of me i have no idea where he is uh he's out of sight out of mind and i resign myself at that fact at that point to the fact that i'm going to finish second i'm like well i'm going to finish second in this race nate's going to beat me He's from UMass Lowell, so he's going to get one point. I'm going to get two. Pat's behind me. I don't know if anyone will catch him, but hopefully our guys are doing well, and we can we can get a low enough score. And we're coming through the woods, and we got like a little less than 1K to go, maybe like 800 meters to go, 600 meters to go. And you come up this hill, and I see him at the top of the hill. I see Nate, and I'm like, do a double take. I'm like, holy shit that's him like that's nate he's right there he's he's like maybe 10 seconds ahead of me and i've got you know 600 meters of running to go maybe maybe 800 meters but somewhere in that range and i could see just his stride break i saw that he was really struggling i mean nate's a big guy he's not the prettiest runner to begin with but i could see that he had started to unravel and I don't think he knew that I was coming. And by this point, people are lining the course and they're kind of going crazy. And I've got the momentum and I'm like, well, I got nothing to lose. And I know Pat's not coming back. And there's, I, I felt really confident that no one behind me was running as fast as I was at that point. I was like, I'm going to get this son of a bitch. And I just started reeling him in. And you finish at Franklin Park in Boston around this field and you come down this short steep little downhill onto the flat field there are two backstops um from you know baseball fields out there and you basically go around the backstops and you go to the finish line and the field is packed this is the regional championship uh with you know all the women's teams there's a, a race after us that's going to go off parents fan like the place is just packed and it's a madhouse it's going crazy and nate's trying to hold on and, and win this race and i'm charging at him and now I'm thinking I could win this race. Like I really could win this race. I thought I was out of it. And it was my, my biggest dream to be the regional champion. I'd never won a regional title before. I think the, the best I had finished was fourth or fifth overall. And I knew I had the momentum and I was bringing him in with every stride and he was fighting as hard as, as, as hard as he could. And by this point he knew that I was coming and I'm closing on him and I'm closing on him with every step. And we come around the final backstop and I really think that I'm going to pass him uh, and it's going to be super close, like right at the line. Long story short, he held on really well. He won the race in 30.55 for 10K. I was 30.57. I remember there was a photographer at the finish line taking photos straight on and you could look at them after the race. And there was a sequence of photos from that finish and you could see me getting closer with every stride and nate's head is like cocked all the way back and his eyes are rolling like my head's cocked all the way back and like my arms are up really high and i'm just everything that i can to try and catch him and i and i did not catch him i mean if the race you know if ifs and buts were were candy and nuts it'd be christmas every day but if the race were 10 meters longer i would have passed him uh and and i would have won but that's that's how the that's how the chips fall and I, I didn't get him he he ran a very valiant race and a very tough race and he was able to hold on he and honestly he deserved to win i mean he you know he'd done all the work the previous four miles and and really put it out there to try and, and win the race himself i didn't catch him but still to this day like as i was telling that story i just i get goosebumps and the hair on the back of my neck stands up and and i i mean that was fall of 2003 so 17 years ago at at this point and it still feels like yesterday and i had nate on my podcast um just a couple months ago and we talked about that race and we both still talk about that race with such respect for each other but such excitement i mean nate went on to a great professional career he was seventh at the u.s olympic trials in 2000 fall of 2007 just four years after that um 
totally took his running to to a new level. He's he's run for the U.S. at the World Championships in the marathon, and he still says that was one of the most exciting races that he's ever been a part of. And that makes me really proud to know that I was a part of it as well, and that I was able to take him to the tape and you know, keep him on his toes the, the entire time. So I've been, I've been babbling on for a while now, but those are, those are two of the most exciting races I've ever run. At least the two that really stand out to me, uh, from my, my earliest days. And there's, there are certainly others since then, but I don't want to bore your listeners with, uh, stories of, of years gone by. <laughs> oh, no, mate, you've articulated that brilliantly. You can talk for as long as you want. Well, I'll get to like, um, some old other times later, but Nate Jenkins, he, he, I've loved him for a long time. He he's a he's a, a warrior for one, and he, he yeah. he's similar to you where like he he del he loves to delve into his own physiology. I know he's a big uh, Canova man and all that kind of stuff. I'm not sure if he still is, but he was when he was running those Olympic trials. Um, and he, he's brilliant. Um, so he's obviously a good mate of yours. I didn't know that story, so that's that's fantastic. And thank that thanks for sharing, and thanks for sharing with such theatre. Because um, I felt like that could have been like a little fifteen-minute doco. We could, <laughs> we could make a little doco about it. Yeah, we got to get thirty. I, I've 30 never, on the line. I, yeah, I've never seen footage of the race, and I mean, cell phones weren't as ubiquitous then as they are now. So who knows if it if it exists? But I, yeah, I, I would love it to be, you know, a, a mini, you know, mini documentary of of some sort and getting you know, getting commentary from myself and Nate and the coaches and other characters is involved. Like no one would care. I mean, this is NCAA division two cross country in, in new England. Um, we were the only ones that cared, but it's like, those are the things that, you know, those are the things that stick with you. Uh, those are the moments that, you know, that shape you. And much like I was saying how my college teammates and I now 20 years later, we tell, still tell the same stories. I mean, that was 17 years ago and Nate and I still tell that story to anyone who's uh curious enough to ask us about it so well, well i'm curious and i'm sure there's thousands of runners listeners that are curious that's a fantastic story you're probably better placed than me to get ASBN onto that mate so i'll let you go with the 30 for 30 top <laughs> the pitch um i'll probably not in a great position over here in melbourne to get that done for you but i reckon it's a cracker hey um that that's a great story and isn't it funny how look your adversary back in 03 and your teammates like you're all just so still such great great mates today which is is what sport's all about team sport and people forget the college distance running is is one of the greatest team sports um i think in australia we haven't got as much of a club or a, a team ethos yet we've obviously built it but it's it's nothing like the ncaa so the team ethos there and two decades later you're still best of mates well and to be in a situation where you're in school so you're running together every day. You're going to practice. You also, we all live together. We lived in the same dorms. I mean, we spent summers on campus training. I mean, I, for, for all intents and purposes, spent the better part of four years around these guys all the time. I mean, we, we spent all of our, our time together. And when you do that, and especially around the pursuit of a collective goal, the bonds that form from that, are often inseparable and they get really strong during that time period and they hold for several years afterwards. I mean, we've run together since some of the guys don't run as much anymore. We've been in each other's weddings. Uh, we've gone to, you know, funerals, we've celebrated births. Uh, we get excited for whatever accomplishments we've been able to, you know, to, to stack up for ourselves. But I mean, those, those bonds are, are so strong. And I think that environment is so unique and I feel really fortunate that I, I met all of those guys and I had those opportunities and that they're still a big part of my life today. Yeah. That's, that's well said. And at that stage, your life as well from 18 to 22 where. Yeah. It's very formative years. Yeah. It yeah. is just, it's that it's a great stage of your life. All right, that was awesome. Thanks so much for sharing all that, mate. We, we I want to take you into the coaching side of it because obviously a massive sure. part, of your, part of your life and still is. Um, and then we'll go into the media and then we'll go into a bit of um, quick fires after that. But the coaching side of it, you're already delving as a 17-year-old into your, your own physiology. How do I move the needle on my own performance? How do I move the needle on others' performance maybe? Um, so tell us where that all came from. And then I guess you've done so much in coaching and you still are. Uh, take us through. I know you trained Boston qualifiers. You've trained Olympians. You was it 2012? You 
Costa Rica marathon coach. Is that correct? Take us through a bit of that. And I guess yeah. then your methodology and I'll, I'll lead you from some of that stuff. Yeah, I'll give you the background first and then you can follow up with whatever specific questions you want to ask. But it does go back to high school and being on the cross country team, uh, which I joined as a junior initially to keep in shape for basketball. And again, I didn't really train that first year of cross country. I raced twice a week and I would run one or two other times a week, you know, two to three miles, something like that. But again, we never did workouts. We never did long runs. We never had any periodization. We weren't building up necessarily. I mean, the, the state championship for my high school was just not something we, we talked about. I mean, it was, you know, the team existed, but it wasn't competitive at all. I was competitive and that's the spark that lit for me. Like I'd go into these races off no training, just pure athleticism and competitiveness. And I would do really well. And I would win some of the smaller races. I missed qualifying for the state championship that first year I ran cross country as a junior in high school by one place. Um, and I, again, like I didn't train that season. I just did these dual meet races. That was it. And I missed qualifying by one place. And that really lit a fire under my butt. Cause I'd never seen that kind of success in basketball. Um, I'd been on the basketball team. I'd had some success, but I, I didn't, you know, your success in basketball is, is the success of the team, which I can appreciate. But the thing I liked about running and was different about it, it was all me. Um, you know, whether or not I did well in a race depended on the decisions that I made during it or how deep I wanted to dig toward the end of the race. And I really liked that from the very beginning, but I'd had some success off of what I knew was not training. So I started, trying to learn as much as I could. I would go to the library at our school during free periods or during our library time. And I would take out every book that the library had on track and field or running. And they actually had quite a few. A lot of them were older from 1950s and 60s. I remember one of them was the Sports Illustrated Guide to Track and Field. And it went through all the different events and how people trained for them. And then I would go online during free periods or computer class and I would uh, I don't think it was Google at the time. It might have been like Ask Jeeves or something like that, one of the early search engines. But I would find whatever people had posted online at the time. And it's not nearly as robust of a collection of articles and things like that as, as there is now. But I could find the training schedules of some of the, the greats. Uh, and maybe it was one or two weeks at a time of like Haile Gebrselassie or Daniel Komen or older runners like Lasse Viren or Steve Prefontaine, like, Hey, here's, here's what they did. And I was like, I'm not doing any of this stuff. Um, and I knew that these were some of the best athletes in the world. And I had enough common sense that I couldn't replicate their schedules, but I was like, I could do some of this. Um, and I was just trying to learn as much as I could. And it wasn't even so much the physiology of it. It was the methodology of how these guys structured their weeks and they would do hard workouts, you know, two or three times a week. They would do a long run once a week, all these things that I, that I weren't doing. I was searching for patterns that I could find in their different programs. I, I was, I, I wasn't, I was not, and never really have been a science minded person. That's not to discount the importance of the science or being able to, to understand it. But I was always more interested in the, in the methodology and searching for patterns and seeing what common things led to success for people. And I started that my junior year of, of high school. And then I met Bill going into my senior year and I, I learned from him. I would go to the track. He would say, Hey, here's a session. We're going to do 400 meter repeats. And I'd like you to try and do them in 80 seconds and we're going to take equal rest in between. And I've always been a curious person, even before high school, before running ever came into the picture. I've always asked a lot of questions. I still have a report card from second grade, Mrs. McFadden. And she wrote in there, Mario asks a lot of questions. Please tell him never to stop asking questions. And it's, it's funny to look back at that. Uh, this is when I was in second grade and I was already, I just asked whatever, you know, we'd learned something, why, you know, how, and I've always 
I've always been that way. I've always been curious in, in that regard. So when I started going to Bill's workouts, he'd say, all right, we're going to do 10 by 480 seconds with 80 seconds rest. I'd say, well, why are we, why are we doing that? Why are we doing 10 and not eight and not 12? Why is the rest 80 seconds and not 40 or not 60? Um, and I'm fortunate that he was very patient with me and would like, you know, answer my questions and I would learn. And that's how you get the answers that you're seeking is by is by asking questions. It sounds really simple, but that always made sense to me from a very, you know, very early age. So the problem I'm trying to solve is how do I become a faster runner? And I go and try and educate myself as much as I can. And then I just start, you know, I start asking questions and then I start seeking out the answers to them, whether they're from other coaches or they're from things that, you know, that I'm I'm reading. So I essentially coached myself through high school. Um, I would go to Bill's workouts and I would ask him, you know, how many reps I should do in his track workout. But then I'd ask him what I should do on the weekend. And he would say, well, you should try to do a longer run. And I was like, well, how long? He's like, well, he's like, you're doing, you know, between four and six miles during the week. Like, you know, I think eight to 10 miles on a, on a weekend is a reasonable, you know, long run for you. And, and, and I was coachable and I would, I would do it. And, I did it consistently enough that I started to see improvement. I had a, you know, I had a great senior year and the way that I approached my senior year of high school compared to my junior year of high school, we had the same coach, Jim, the janitor, we had, you know, the same small team, but I started doing workouts on my own. I would do the dual meets. Um, sometimes I would do intervals afterward. I would do long runs on the weekend or I would do another workout on the weekend. Uh, but it all came from me because the coach wasn't, wasn't assigning it to me. Uh, and then I, I ran track that, that senior year was the first time I ran track year round. I ran indoor and outdoor track in addition to cross country. Again, we didn't have much of a team. I would go to the races. Um, the coaches weren't really giving us specific workouts. It was just go out and run. And, I was like, well, I, I know enough at this point because I've done my research and I've talked to people that I need to do more than just go out and run, you know, two to four miles. Like I need to go to the track and do some intervals. I need to do hill repeats. Um, I need to do some longer runs. And I didn't do anything crazy in high school. I mean, I think I ran maybe at, at the peak, like 30 to 40 miles at, at the most in a, in a week. But by my senior year, I had some variety in my program and it was all coming from me. And there was a lot of self-experimentation involved there. And I started, Bill encouraged me to keep a, a diary, which I still have to this day. And I was writing how I felt after workout splits that I was hitting, how long it would take me to recover from a session. So I, I, I learned a lot and I felt like I knew a lot, but I didn't think that I was a know-it-all. Um, but I knew that I knew, I, I knew that I knew something and I knew that I was really interested in just, you know, how this whole training thing worked. And that's maybe a good place to just stop for right now in case you want to follow up. But that's where I was at the end of high school, like going into college. I, I had this like, you know, junior year, getting into cross country, no training, no workouts, uh, a bit of learning. And then the senior year where I actually trained like a runner and it was all self-imposed and self-directed and self-taught. All right. Thanks. I I um I loved hearing that. I can ad- identify with that so so well, and I think a lot of coaches of various sports can, but especially distance running and endurance sports in general. The the the, the curiosity is so so important. Um, mm-hmm. not just not just to accept what's been in front of you forever. You you, you need to be curious and to like I'll, the methodology and to seek out. So coming into college, obviously you you got coach very well. I wanted to go. I guess, out of college and then some of the coaches you might have took other, I guess, methods from not, not, not talk, but like uh, some of the coaches you might have idolized or looked up to, mm-hmm. uh, wh- whether they're household names or not. Well, before we go there, I don't think we should skip college. Cause for me, that was a very formative time as an athlete, but also a lot of the building blocks that I have built my coaching practice upon were laid down there. And my freshman and sophomore year of cross country, the guy who was the coach had started the program, you know, a couple decades earlier. It, as I described earlier, it wasn't a serious program and we did workouts, but I could tell, and I had enough knowledge at that point to know that there was no rhyme or reason to it. He was just pulling out like no joke, whatever he found in 
runner's world that week or whatever he might have read on some website and it didn't it just didn't make sense to me and i was probably a little irreverent during that period of of my life i'm certainly not not proud of it but i would i would it's my nature i would question why we were doing things and i couldn't get satisfactory answers and because of that i didn't have the confidence in in that program when i ran track my first two years of college and i had coach bowen as my track coach and it was a complete 180 her approach versus his and she had a background in exercise science uh she was a competitive distance runner herself she was a great leader and a great teacher and could explain these things and she had my confidence right away and and still does to to this day where i just i would question her but only out of of curiosity and she always had an answer and it always made sense and things were very logical and things always had you know a, a satisfactory like explanation and then i could i could see the result and and I learned a lot from her in terms of like the workouts that we did. I still use a lot of those, those workouts and, um, methodology today. Um, but I had confidence in it myself as, as an athlete. And I learned how important that part of the relationship between coach and athlete was because I didn't have it in high school and I didn't have it with my cross country coach, my freshman and sophomore year, but I had it with her. I, I trusted her implicitly. I bought in to her program. If she told me to run straight into a wall at 60 second quarter pace, I would do it. No questions asked. And that really stuck with me in college. Um, and I think that was a big reason why I had a lot of success and I improved as much as I did as, as an athlete, but beyond college, because post-collegiately I worked with some other coaches who I learned things from and were good coaches, but for one reason or another, I didn't have that same level of trust, that same level of, of buy-in. They didn't run their programs or, or have the type of relationship with their athletes that I, that I had in college. And that was the type of, as a coach now, like that's the type of relationship that I want to have with the athletes that, that I work with. Um, you know, I want to be trusted implicitly. I want to be able to answer all of their questions to, you know, reverse any doubts that, that may, you know, that may come up. So, I mean, still to this day, I mean, I, I learned so much from Karen Bowen about, you know, exercise science and physiology and the why behind workouts and also how to structure training programs and the importance of intensity and the importance of rest and recovery and the importance of being just a balanced, you know, a, a balanced, happy person, you know, and that can help you become a, a balanced, happy, you know, athlete. And, and I mean, there are certainly other influences in there as well, but I mean, she's still the, the biggest one to this day. That's a great answer. I didn't mean to gloss over it, but that that's perfect. So the the trust, the buy in is is huge. The you, you are you've got to. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care, and it's an old saying. Exactly, it's, it's so true. And um, as coaches, we're not doing our job if the athlete doesn't feel loved, and and especially if they can trust. They need to be able to yeah jump off a cliff for us, and, that, and that's that's so so true. And I got you go. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, as a, you know, as a coach, you've got to decide, do you want to be a, a transformational coach? And that's what Karen Bowen was for me. Like she transformed me as an athlete and the numbers spell that out in terms of what my PBs were when I went in versus when I left, but she transformed me as a person. And a lot of the way that I, I approach coaching, but many other aspects of my life is due to her influence. And that's the power of a good coach. Not every coach is going to have that type of impact on someone. But the other side of the coin is, are you a transactional coach? There's a lot of those today. Um, and what I mean by that is they might take a questionnaire from you and learn a few things, and then they write you up a program and you pay them, you know, 150, 200 bucks a month, whatever it happens to be. And you never hear from them. They just program your training. That's not coaching. Like that's a, that's not transformative. That's transactional. Um, and, and 
with the the proliferation of online coaching these days and i mean with covid right now i mean everything is is digital and it's important i mean most of my athletes are are remote as well but it's got to be more than just sending them the program and them sending you money every month and then you updating their plan and maybe leaving a you know a comment or two like to me like that's not coaching and, and it's something i'm fiercely protective of like i have a very uh a, a very opinionated idea of like what is actually coaching versus what is actually just schedule writing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And unfortunately even way before COVID it was quite prevalent and it's um, yeah. Transaction was a great word for it actually. And look, all we can do is, is continue to, to be authentic and, or, and continue to do things the right way. And, and hopefully, hopefully the rest will follow because I think when you talk about those kind of coaches, not to be negative for too long at all, but they, they normally don't last in the game and they get found out pretty right. quickly. They get found out very quickly as a rule and their athletes won't stay open for longer than six to 12 months normally anyway. So how they're going to get any growth or transformation is, is not, it's just not going to occur. Yeah. And, and I mean, coaching at its very core is a relationship. Um, and I think if you view it in that way, like, that relationship shouldn't just last 12 weeks or 16 weeks. Um, there are going to be training blocks that last 12 weeks or 16 weeks, but that relationship should be ongoing. And if you're in the, in the coaching business, you really should be in the relationship business. You shouldn't be in the training plan business. That, that's a whole separate thing. Like training plans are fine. If that's what you want, you don't want coaching, but don't call yourself a coach. If all you're doing is writing a static 12 week plan and then you're not interacting with the person like that's, that's a transaction. That's not coaching. That's so true. Training plans and methods, and it's probably 5% of the game. So um, I'm, I'm, I knew you'd go down that that path and I, I was waiting for that. So that's, that's really important. And we'll, we'll continue to touch on that throughout because relationships, and I know like with your athletes, how close you are to them. Um, and I think that's why I've resonated a lot with you. And I know there's a lot of other coaches around the world, not just in the States that resonate very very true with you as well for that reason. Just see, you're very hands-on, you're very personal, and you're really emotionally tied in, which which is why, which is all athletes really desire to 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 continue to buy in and trust trust you as a as a human and as a coach. So, do, do you want? We'll quickly touch on your, your your coaching at a professional level, and then we'll just move on to sure. to what what um what makes you tick and and the media stuff that's been massive. You did coach many national levels and, and the Olympics. Tell us about this because I actually was unaware of this until recently. So that was it the Costa Rican marathon team. Is that right? Yeah. And by Costa Rican marathon team, it was one athlete. His name is Cesar Lozano. Uh, he was the sole representative at the London Games in 2012. I, as his coach, was fortunate enough to get to go to the Olympics as a member of the Costa Rican staff. So I was accredited at the Olympics. I stayed in the village. I had the Costa Rican warmups and, and all of that. And, and a lot of that, I mean, I think Costa Rica in the 2012 games had 11 athletes total at the Olympics. And because they don't have an Olympic trials, um, Cesar was the only male marathoner in the country who had hit the standard so it wasn't even a selection process it was like okay this guy hit the standard um we have a small country a very proud country we want to be as represented as possible at the olympics so that more people can be aware of of costa rica and they had an athlete that they could be the be proud of that they they asked me if I would if I would be interested in in joining the staff um, for the you know for the games like through the federation. I mean I was his I was his personal coach. I I I don't didn't have like a a program in Costa Rica where I had I was developing like you know twelve marathoners or anything like that. I was I was his personal coach, but because he was the only guy in the country who had the the standard and they had one female who got to go and her coach Juan Luis got to go with her. Um, I, I was fortunate that they asked me to, to go and I got to like, I have it behind me. I don't know if you can, if you can yeah, see okay. it, it's on the wall behind me somewhere. It's just the, uh, you know, I got the, 
the uh, participation certificate, you know, from from the Olympics, which was a really cool opportunity because, you know, here in the States, we have a, an Olympic trials, which is a few hundred people trying to qualify for one of three spots on the team. They all have different coaches, those athletes who make the team. Um, their coaches 99.9% of the time don't get to go, like they might go to the Olympics on their own dime and they might be on the course like coaching, but they don't get to be a part of the delegation and to be considered the, the national team coach for the Olympic games. It's very much a, you know, when the U S names the, the head coach of the track and field team, uh, or the long distance coach, it's, it's very much a, a ceremonial thing. It usually goes to someone who has been in the sport for a long time. They may or may not have an athlete who's actually competing in the game. They don't actually, you know, write the program for say Alephine Tuliamuk, who's going to represent the U S like Ben Rosario is going to write her program. Ben's not going to be the the coach. I, I was fortunate that I was coaching someone from a very small country who had a pretty incredible opportunity. And I, I happened to be able to, take advantage of it.